Well, it was 45 years ago today something happened. Yeah, I preached my first message. We'll talk about the call of ministry and more today. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Yes, August 21st, 1973. That was the day I preached my first church message. Obviously, I've been preaching the gospel to all my friends from the day I got saved by God's grace and mercy, the end of 1971. But here, oh, so about 20 months or so after coming to know the Lord, having read the Bible cover to cover about that, about five times at that point, and having memorized maybe 4,000 verses, 20 verses a day, day in, day out for at least six months, all by God's grace and calling on my life, preach my first message. I want to talk to you about God's redemptive power today. I want to talk to you about the call to ministry. I want to talk about how God can make something out of nothing. Maybe you're praying for loved ones that are away from the Lord. Maybe your own life is a mess right now. In Jesus, there is hope. And then... Second half hour, going to be speaking with Dr. Alex McFarland about a brand new apologetics conference series that you'll want to know about uh, starting in Tennessee. So we'll be talking more about that. Here's the number to call, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. Many of you know my personal testimony, which I haven't shared on the air in many a year, as far as I recall, on the Line of Fire broadcast. It is literally from LSD to PhD. So born and raised in New York City and Long Island, my dad was the senior lawyer in the New York Supreme Court, technically senior law assistant, but he was the one working directly with the judges. In fact, we thought he was going to be promoted to judge right before he ended up retiring. But I had a good upbringing. My mom and dad is happily married as any couple I have known, and we moved to Long Island right before I turned seven, lived in the suburbs, everything fine, should have been fine, started playing drums when I was eight years old, the Beatles came to America when I was nine years old, yes, some of you remember that, some of you are old enough to understand the saying, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there, so the, the big event in my life when I turned 13 was not my bar mitzvah, now, that's an important rite of passage for a traditional Jew. It's a very, very important time for a young Jewish man growing up. But I was not religious. We were not in a religious home. We were more nominal. Oh, we knew we were Jews. It was important to us. It was important to our values and our self-identity. Out of the 300 families that lived in our neighborhood, almost all of them were Jewish, but most all of us were nominal. So there were very few families in our community, if at all, that lit the Sabbath candles from Friday night into Saturday. That was highly unusual. Synagogue attendance during the week would be terribly low. You might have 10 men barely on a Saturday morning, but come the high holy days, we had to build an annex to seat the hundreds that would come. So I was raised in that. So when I was bar mitzvah, to be honest with you, it was more of a social event than a spiritual event. The bigger event that impacted me in 1968 at the age of 13, November of 68, was seeing Jimi Hendrix in concert at the New York Philharmonic. 
and everything about it, the the sound of the music, the intensity of, of the volume, the breaking, the feeling of breaking all the rules, the the outfits the guys wore, the the sights, the sounds, everything had this this powerful appeal. I thought I've got to be playing in a band. I've got to, you know, I just want to be like these rock stars. And, and had played the band intermittently, desperate to be in one again. I was a good drummer for a kid my age. So now, 14 years old, someone offers me pot. Want to try getting high? I thought, well, you know, we're not supposed to do it. There's that verse in Proverbs 9 that says, Stolen water is sweet, and, and bread eaten in secret is delicious. In other words, if you can't touch it, if you're not allowed to have it, it has that special appeal and that special power. So, I mean, that was part of it. And then the other part was, well, the, the rock stars do drugs, so why not try? So I, I tried smoking pot, but nothing happened. person with me thought it was great. Nothing happened to me. Well, I should have quit while I was ahead, but that just got me more curious. So now I'm with some other people. They're smoking something a little more powerful, hashish, hash. Want to try that? I, I smoked hash, and nothing happened. And they're getting high and nothing happened to me. Again, should have quit while I was ahead. But it seemed that somehow the way my body was wired, I was more resistant to drugs. And again, like I said, should have quit while I was ahead. And this is what almost got me killed later because I I was so resistant to drugs that, that I would put large quantities in my body. But very quickly, I started doing other drugs. Still 14 years old. Ups and downs. So these different pills. And then LSD. Those of you with kids or grandkids that are 14 and your kids are good kids and innocent kids, two of our grandsons are 14, about six weeks apart. Uh, our oldest grandchild, 17, great young lady. The boys, good guys. Our, our youngest, 11, great girl. I mean, 14 years old, that can still be pretty innocent. Yeah, there's two of our granddaughters there, those that are watching, Ellie and Riley, 17 and 11. And, you know, 14, our grandson's 14, that, that's pretty young, but kids are doing a whole lot worse today. Kids are doing a whole lot worse than I was doing at 14 because drugs are so much more available, so much more powerful. Sexual immorality has become so much more part of the culture. Uh, there was no such thing as cell phones when we were kids. Therefore, there was no such thing as sexting, sending naked pictures to one another, nor were any of us thinking of taking naked pictures. I mean, to be honest, it just was not part of our culture, as sinful as we were. So in certain ways, things have degenerated. Other ways, there's been a little bit of a pushback. But 14 years old, started getting high, all kinds of different drugs. And now, some of you remember the foolishness of youth. You know, I can drink more than you can drink. I get in more fights than you get. I get in more high-speed accidents. You know, just idiotic things that we think are cool. So this became part of my identity. Look at all the drugs I can do. I can take a higher quantity than you and you, and I get really out there when I do it. 15 years old, and what you'd have to call a satanic appointment, you'd have to say this was set up by hell. Met a guy on a bus. He asked if I had a particular drug. It so happened it was a rare drug, and I had it in my pocket in white powder form. And I looked at him, do you know where I can get heroin? He had it in his pocket. He could have been a narcotics agent. He could have been anything. Just seeing some long-haired kid on a bus and trying to, to catch me. I was that stupid. He was that stupid. We exchanged drugs right there on the bus. Yeah, talk about crazy, idiotic. I remember I ran home all excited to shoot heroin for the first time. I was already shooting speed. And, and listen, I want to give you a cautionary word here. All right? Sin 
does not come knocking at your door in full deceptive garb and say, I'm here to destroy you. Sin does not show you the final consequences. Sin does not show you how low you'll go. Sin does not show you the ugly things you'll end up doing. In fact, sin presents itself as sometimes innocent or even beautiful, desirable. Think of the, the tree of life and the Garden of Eden. Much about it was good, except it was, excuse me, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Much about it was good and beautiful, but it was forbidden. The thing itself may be beautiful. Your neighbor's wife may be beautiful. That, that picture of, of alcohol in the glass may be beautiful. That All that money, look at that, that stack of money. That's beautiful. Think of what you could do with it. Yeah, but if it's gained in wrong ways, it's destructive. And if those things don't belong to you or are not for you, they're destructive. I've often taught that sin doesn't satisfy. It comes to you and tells you, if you'll just do this, you'll be happy. But it's a lie. It's a lie. Well, you don't have to have sex with her. Just, you know, get in a little email texting relationship. Then you'll be happy. No, that won't make you happy. First, it's sin to start if that person is not yours legally or, or illicitly or rightly in God's sight. It's only going to open the door for more sin. It's only going to lure you in. Sin doesn't satisfy. Instead, sin leads to more sin. And then sin leads to worse sin. And then sin enslaves. And before you know it, you were captive to something that was once completely outside of you and you were completely oblivious to. You know, it's like you lived near a casino for years, like pff, gambling. How do people get into gambling? And then you start playing the lottery, you know, and just a little bit more. And then, you know, the daily double or whatever I don't know the things are called. And, and then, you know, oh, I wonder. And then you walk in the casino and the next thing you're, you're a gambling addict. You used to be free from it. Never compromise your freedom, friends. Freedom comes at a very, very high price. So I remember first time I, I was around people shooting drugs, I thought I'd never do that. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll snort speed. I'll, I'll use, you know, these amphetamines or methadone. I'll never put a needle in my arm. That's bad. And then once I started putting a needle in my arm, I thought, oh, I would never, never, ever under any circumstance shoot heroin. Man, not, not that. And then once I started shooting heroin, I thought, well, if you become a junkie, it's not the end of the world. That's how sin defiles us and destroys us. And, and you may be listening to me, and drugs are the farthest thing from your mind, but there's something else where the enemy's knocking at the door. There's something else where you're being tempted. There's something else being presented to you that has appeal, and you think, well, I'll just go this far. Don't touch it. If it's sinful, if it's wrong, Jesus didn't say cut it back. He said cut it off gouge it out, cut it off, remove it from the source. I'm not talking about kill the person. Cut off the opportunity. Shut the door on the thing. Don't play games with it. If you water it, it will grow. If you water it, it will grow to the point that the weeds become all-consuming. So by the time I was 16 years old, I was known as Drug Bear. I was known as Iron Man because of all the drugs I used. I was considered probably the craziest or the heaviest or one of the heaviest drug users in the school, which to me was something to be proud of. My friends and I broke into some houses, broke into a doctor's office just to do something fun or exotic or stupid or see what we get out of it. To my shame, I, I stole money from my own father, help out some friends and things like that, and then lied about it when caught and confronted. It's embarrassing to talk about these things, but they were part of my life before Jesus saved me. And then our band, my two best friends, 
We're going to be the greatest band ever. We're going to be amazing. And we were, we were good for our age. And uh, two of them get friendly with these two girls in high school. Their dad's a pastor. Their, their uncle's a pastor. Their dad's been praying for them. God starts working on their hearts. They start going to this little gospel preaching church where their uncle's the pastor. My friends go to start spending time with them. They start changing. They start preaching to me. I go in August of 1971 to pull them out, to pull them out of the church. August 1971. And what happens? God begins to work in my heart. One of the young ladies who knew me from high school journaled this. She wrote it down in her journal. Antichrist comes to church. That was me. God's merciful. God's amazing. If he could save a wretch like me, he could save anybody. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Friends, as I'm sharing my testimony with you from LSD to PhD and talking about the call to ministry, can I tell you what made a massive difference? Prayer. Prayer. First time I walked into that church building in Queens, New York, my intent was to pull my friends out. Nothing happened in the service itself to change my mind, but the people were so gracious and loving to me. Folks that were 40s, 50s, 60s, loving, gracious to me, speaking kindly to me. Uh, it, it impacted me. and I thought, okay, my friends are going to go this direction. Fine. Break us up the band, whatever. I'm living the way I'm living. So be it. That was just, they have their religion. I have mine. Oh, suddenly I'm, I'm very Jewish, right? In the midst of all my sin and rebellion. But what happened was, I found this out afterwards. Some of the people there from that day on began to pray for me. Some of them prayed for me daily the rest of their lives. Is that, is that unreal? Is that, that incredible? But one young lady, she was a pastor's oldest daughter. She was a couple years younger than me at that point. We recently met up with her and her husband, and she was saying, yeah, we just started praying for you. We'd be at our homes. We'd be praying for you. We'd be at prayer meeting. We'd be praying for you. God burdened them to pray for this chief of sinners. And in the months that followed, God began to convict me of sin. I'm talking about one day I'm boasting about my sin and thinking I'm the coolest guy out there. And the next day thinking about those same things, I'm ashamed. What kind of wretch am I? What kind of person am I? How can I do this to my own parents? How can I do this to my friends? God was convicting me. And by the end of the year, I was radically, wonderfully born again. The first process was November 12, 71, going to another service. Again, convicted to go when I hung up the phone on my friend that invited me to go. I felt convicted. And I hung up the phone on people all the time. But I felt convicted. I went. And that night, for the first time, I believed that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. But I told God, I'm not willing to change. I'm not willing to repent. I believe this is true, but... I'm going home and shooting cocaine and smoking this drug. And if you don't want me to do it when I get home, if, if you don't want me to, then let it have no effect on me. Uh, again, brand new, stupid prayer. But God being merciful and compassionate, I went home, did a large quantity of drugs, and nothing happened. And I thought, Something, something's going on here. And I had a five-week battle. A five-week battle. One day shooting heroin, next day going to church. One day getting high all day, next day going to church. Back and forth, back and forth. And in those days... 
in high school, we had just gone on strike the year before, and we had something called safe school. And I had a lot of free time every day. So I, I'd go into school. We had a limited school schedule. And, and we could put a graphic up what I, what I looked like in those days. Yeah, there's, there I'm actually, this is immediately after getting saved. I think I've got a New Testament in my hands there. But yeah, long-haired, hippie, uh, newly saved. But, but what happened was, in those days, I had a lot of free time at school. And I'd go to school, get high, go to some classes, didn't have to go to others. And then next day, I'd be in church, back and forth and back and forth. Finally, December 17th of 71, I couldn't wait to get to the service. I couldn't wait to get there. And once I got there, boy, just you know, maybe 50, 60 people, and we're singing these, these, these little hymns, you know, power in the blood and blessed assurance, and when we all get to heaven, and I got completely overcome by the joy of the Lord. I mean, here I was. I had been to rock concert after rock concert. I saw Hendrix twice. I saw Led Zeppelin four times, Jethro Tull four times, 10 years after four times. I saw The Who. I saw The Grateful Dead. I saw Janis Joplin. I saw The Doors. I mean, I lived to go to these concerts, and the volume's so loud, you'd scream at the top of your lungs, and you couldn't even hear yourself. Yeah. And here, piano player playing these little hymns, and I got so full of the joy of the Lord. At that moment, I had an internal vision. In my mind's eye, I saw myself. I, I was covered in mud and dirt, and the blood of Jesus just washed me clean, completely clean. Washed me completely clean. And, and what happened as a result of that, I, I, I then saw myself going back in the mud, living the way I was living. And I said, Lord, I will never put a needle in my arm again. And from that night on, friends, I was set free. Yeah. Threw my drugs out that night, all, all the, the needles and, and shootable drugs. Two days later, I said, Lord, I'll never get high again. I, I had already quit drinking in, in the weeks before that, God dealing with me. And that's that night, that point of surrender. I got home and tell, told my parents what was going on. And they, okay, they were glad, but they wanted to see change. And, and, and then when they saw a change, my dad said, great, we're Jewish. We don't believe this. Need to meet the local rabbi. And, and I, I read the local, met the local rabbi. He began to challenge me, you know, even though Hebrew. So that's what led to my Hebrew studies in college and ultimately my PhD in Near Eastern Languages and Literatures from New York University. But I began hearing talk, yeah, you're called to preach, you're called to preach. And uh, the band, the whole band, we, we each preached. The, the bass player, August 7th of 2000, uh, excuse me, of 1973. The guitar player, August 14th of 1973. And then me, August 21st. And here is my text. Of course, we use the King James Bible in, in those days exclusively. Here is my text. It's from Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. And it's the vision that Paul has of Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 15, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. When Paul said, Who art thou, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things uh, uh, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. Verse 18. So my text was 26.18. To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. 
And he says, whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but shewed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. Again, verse 18, first text I preached from. August 21st, 1973, the first of, by God's grace, many thousands and thousands of messages to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in thee. All right, friends, I, I want to underscore this again. And Matt, if you could put that graphic up again of me as a brand new, long-haired, hippie believer. All right, here, here I am, brand new. And, and let's leave that up for a moment as I speak. And those listening, you can watch this on YouTube or Facebook on our Ask Dr. Brown page and channel. Uh, by God's grace, I've preached around the world. I've been overseas more than 160 times. I've, I've preached at some of the most famous megachurches in the world, be it in Korea, be it in Hungary, be it in Sweden, be it in England, preached 40 or 50 times for David Wilkerson in Times Square Church in New York City, and have preached at some of the most significant churches in America. By God's grace, I've done debates with rabbis or scholars at places like Oxford University or Ohio State University or delivered outreach lectures at, at Hebrew University in Jerusalem or presented academic papers at scholarly conferences at places like Harvard University. By God's grace, now written well over 30 books, daily radio for more than 10 years, TV broadcasts going throughout the Middle East, around the world, and around America, some for Jewish outreach, others for Christian edification. Published scholarly articles in major dictionaries and encyclopedias, contributed many articles to the Oxford Dictionary of Jewish Religion, Articles for New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis, Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament, other works coming out now, serve as a visiting or adjunct professor at seven seminaries, including places like Trinity Evangelical Divinity School or Fuller Theological Seminary or, or others. What's the point? It's 100% by the grace and mercy of God. And, and today, Nancy and I, my bride, we've been married more than 42 years. We met in 1974. Nancy then was a hardcore Jewish atheist. God saved her, brought us together, and we got married in 1976. Yeah, there's a wedding picture right there, 1976. We've been married now more than 42 years. Two wonderful daughters, two wonderful sons-in-law, four wonderful grandchildren, children, our granddaughters. Earlier, there's our grandson, Andrew, 14 years old. Another grandson, Connor, also 14 years old. Uh, we're blessed. We're blessed. Every word I just said is to glorify the Lord. Every word I just said is to boast in the Lord. I know me well enough. There's nothing to boast about in me. Trust me. I know me well enough. I know how many times I could have gotten off the path if not for the grace and mercy of God and probably the prayers of God's people. Oh, with all my heart, I want to please God and live for him and serve him and make a difference. With all my heart, I want my life to count for the Lord. I, I want, I, I, by his grace, I'm running my race, but I know that I know that I know 
that on that day, if he says to me, well done, good and faithful servant, the only, the only righteous response is to take whatever crown I have been given and throw it at his feet because it's all about his grace. I say that to you to say, if God could take someone like me, I mean, huffing diesel gas to get high, just a reprobate kid. If God could take someone like me and use me in these ways, and there's so many other ways I've been allowed to serve, and we've, we've birthed movements that are active around the world, missions movements serving around the world, making an impact on the poor and the hurting and orphans and needy, and we're part of all that. It's, it's amazing. If he could do that for me, he could save anybody and use anybody. Oh, he's got unique callings on each of our lives. But give yourself to God afresh and say, Lord, use me to the full. And then pray with greater faith from those that are backslidden, unsaved, away from God. You never know what God will do through each of them. Stay right there, friends. We'll be right back with Dr. Alex McFarland. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. You know, this young generation coming up is being confronted with more challenges to the faith than previous generations. They're getting exposed to more things on social media. They're getting hit with objections that maybe it 13 would have been unknown a generation ago. You'd have to be in college to hear them, but now you're hit with them at 12. Dr. Josh McDowell said that issues that he would deal with with college-age kids, they now have to deal with with 12- and 13-year-olds, plus the breakdown in families so pervasive in our culture, plus the access to things like pornography, other challenges like this, and being so digitally connected, it's almost as if we're a generation with ADHD. It's hard for us to concentrate and focus just as, as a nation. All the more do we need to bring truth to a new generation. All the more do we need to spread the truth of the defense of the faith, apologetics. This is Michael Brown. You're listening to The Line of Fire. And I'm joined now by my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Alex McFarland. He has been on the front lines of apologetics, teaching, training, reaching young people, ministering to families for several decades now, from Focus on the Family to Southern Evangelical Seminary to other important ventures. And Alex, there's something you're doing now that is tremendously important. I want us to talk about that today. But first, welcome back to the Line of Fire. Oh, thank you, Dr. Brown. Thank you so much for having me back. Well, my joy always. What is it that got you so interested in apologetics? Oh, great question. Well, about 72 hours into the faith at 21 on the campus of UNC Greensboro, uh, myself and a couple of friends that also were brand new believers were trying to witness for the gospel, and people kind of blew us blew us away with their questions. Um, and one guy said, you know, maybe Jesus never even existed. I'm, you know, he was a student in a class on cultural anthropology. The professor said there probably never was an historical Jesus. And so I'd been a believer about three days, Dr. Brown, and I knew I something real had happened in my life 
But these guys had hard questions, and I really felt like it was my duty to give them answers. And, and at that time, you probably didn't look quite the way you looked. You were, you were guitar playing. Uh, what, what was your background? Well, you know, I grew up in the South in the Bible Belt. There's a church on every corner. You know, religion was just a part of everybody's life. But I did not know Jesus personally until I was 21. My heroes were John Lennon and Jim Morrison, and I was playing in a band. You know, I'm ugly now, but at 21 with, you know, shoulder-length hair, I was really something you didn't want to look at, you know. And uh, I uh, seriously, uh, you know, the band I was in, we we wrote songs like Legalize Acid. Uh, I mean, I called myself a philosophical anarchist, and I, you know, I read Nietzsche because Jim Morrison read Nietzsche, you know, and I, you know, believed in revolution, although I could not have defined what that meant. I was just a stupid punk who had listened to way too much uh, music. And um, But you know what? Here's the thing. Uh, Angie, my wife, who we just celebrated 30 years, I owe everything to Jesus, of course, but I owe it to Angie because she was a girl in nursing school at another college, she um, had a peace and a joy that I'd never really seen before, but she also had principles, and she wouldn't date me. And the fact that I was in a band did not impress her, and the fact that I had, you know, some old beater of a Ford Mustang did not impress her. Um, and she said, hey, come to church, come to our Bible study four weeks, and I'll think about going out with you. And I really did it just to placate her and, you know, with completely the wrong attitude, ulterior motives, I went to hang out with these, you know, unenlightened Bible study people just to get that over with, and hopefully this girl might go out with me. But um, I'd never heard the Bible taught verse by verse, and as an English major, it gripped me. And I was a word guy, I like language, and the, the teacher was going through the books of the Bible where it says that, you know, the devils believe yet tremble. That's James mm. two nineteen, and I realized that I had a knowledge that there must be some higher power, but I, I learned that I could have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, back to trying to share the gospel, um, I went to a Christian bookstore after these guys kind of shut us down. Had never heard the word apologetics. Had never. I, I knew nothing about anything, Doctor Brown. I could have fallen into heresy, and I would not have known the difference. Yep. But in the providence of God, I discovered two books by some guy named Josh McDowell. And um, reading the footnotes of Evidence that Demands a Verdict and More Than a Carpenter, I discovered names like C.S. Lewis and E.J. Carnell and Francis Schaeffer. And, um, you know, I, I, obviously we give God the glory. But I'm here today to save in the ministry, um, have degrees and education, a purpose in life of, because of the Lord, but because there was a girl who was willing to tell me not what I wanted to hear, but what I needed to hear. And I, I'm saying that because everybody listening to your show, and by the way, you are one of my heroes, Dr. Brown. I, I've always said this um, ever since I've known you, which is about 12 or 13 years. If I could trade brains with anybody in America, it would be Dr. Michael Brown. But... Uh, Seriously, witness, invite somebody to church, um, you might change somebody's eternity by bringing them to a Bible study. 
that's what Angie did for me. I mean, my soul got saved, my life got changed, my destiny was set because a girl pestered me into going to a Bible study 30 years ago. Yeah, uh, amazing. Just amazing. And Alex, today is, is my 45th anniversary of the first message that I ever preached. And the first half hour of this broadcast, I went through some of my testimony again. By the way, the favorite song that our band used to play, it was without words, but the medley was famous, was Dance of the Mushroom Man. That was that was our favorite song. People like that extended jam oh. the best. Yeah, so <laughs> the, wow. same, the same lost uh, idiocy put to music. Some musical talent with some pretty bizarre ideas behind it. But all, all that to say... I got confronted early on by rabbis. Uh, I knew my life had changed. I knew the Bible was true, but they raised serious issues. And then when I thought, I've, I've got to dig into this, I, I stumbled upon people like Alfred Edersheim, you know, a great Hebrew Christian of the 1800s, and, and some other solid works of, of Old Testament introduction, and, and found some of the, the solid scholars, and that helped guide my path, but, but there's no one around to guide me and no one in my church. If I raised the word apologetics, I don't know that anyone would have even known what it meant. We just were, were very different in our focus and orientation. So you knew from day one, this is important. You stayed with it. You've gotten yourself seriously educated, but you have a burden to make truth known, not just to the intellectuals, but to your average everyday believer, to the younger generation. You've written books for young people as well. Alex, what does this young generation have to deal with that may be unique, more intense, more difficult than you and I had to deal with when we came to faith? Great question, Dr. Brown. Um, you know, in, in the 70s and 80s, there was a lot of question about evidence. Um, you know, are the manuscripts of the Bible trustworthy? You know, did Moses write the Pentateuch, or did Moses even exist? And how do we know the resurrection is true? Um, it, it's interesting, as I travel, and I, I was at a couple of colleges to speak, uh, even in the last couple of weeks, kids um, are not asking so many evidential questions, although that is important, and the evidence is unequivocally on the side of the Bible, but there are questions of relationship, of justice, uh, questions of power and motive. Um, and, and there's so much about the mindset of, of young people that is attributable to the breakdown of the family, I believe. Um, you and I, Dr. Brown, in our generation, there was like right, wrong, true, false, guilt, innocence. But kids today, they're, they're not about facts versus error so much. They're about inclusion and belonging versus exclusion and solitude. They're, they're more about the tribe than the truth. Now, now here's the thing. Um, everybody wants acceptance, significance, security. And for 6,000 years of human history, we've gotten that from the family, largely. I honestly believe over the last 40 to 50 years, as the Western world, and specifically America, has really kind of abandoned the traditional view of the family, and, you know, something like 58 to 62 percent of young people today will never live under the same roof with their biological mom and dad. Mm, incredible. Um, that context where we found, you know, acceptance, do I fit in, significance, do I matter, security, am I safe, 
Um, we, we don't have that to fall back on, and so where do we get it? We get it from our tribe, our, our circle of friends. And that's why, you know, parents ask me, my kid goes to youth group, they've made a profession of faith, you know, we're in church, and yet my child um, has beliefs that can be wildly unbiblical. How is that? It's because people will allow incongruity to exist in their mind rather than to risk exclusion from the tribe. Yeah. Yeah, and just to, am I right on that? Oh yeah, yeah, uh, and I want to focus in on that. You know, in different cultures, they will emphasize, for example, honor versus shame. So we're thinking Correct. right, wrong. They're thinking honor, shame, and we have to understand how a culture thinks. When we had Vietnamese refugees living in our home in late seventies, early eighties, there was always that tension of they would want to save face, which would mean acting deceitfully. And our thing was, no, you have to be truthful, even if it embarrasses someone. And, and it was a real ethical conflict. And we have to understand that rather than just condemn young people or say you're being so illogical. Let's, let's look at what's behind it. So on the one hand, a passion for justice, fine, it may get expressed in wrong ways or it may end up with wrong causes, but there's something going on there. So let, let's just focus on this another minute here, this idea of tribal inclusion being more important than absolute truth. In fact, we got a break coming up, but where can folks go to find out? We'll talk about the conference shortly, but give me a website we can point people to right now before our break. Well, uh, a couple. One would be Josh McDowell's website, josh.org. My own website, alexmcfarland.com. We've got an ever-growing uh, database of searchable articles that I've written over 500 articles, and we're adding to it every week to help people understand how to relationally but effectively convey truth. All right, friends, we'll be right back. There's a major conference coming soon we want to talk about. AlexMcFarland.com, a great place to go. Let's better understand this younger generation. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us today. I'm speaking with Dr. Alex McFarland. Alex, talk to us about what's coming in Tennessee and beyond, and, and what your vision is. Oh, thanks. Well, you know, the Truth for a New Generation conferences are something that I started, you know, back in the 90s when I was a youth pastor, and it's really grown and grown, and uh, TNG, sometimes we call it, but Truth for a New Generation is an apologetics Christian worldview extravaganza, really. It's a conference, but it's, it's a happening and we're very excited. September 14, 15, we're going to be in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. This is the greater Nashville area, probably about 30 minutes from the Nashville airport. Folks, there's time to get your ticket and come. Josh McDowell will be there, Jay Warner Wallace, great apologist, Dr. Michael Brown. And I want to thank you for making time in your busy schedule to come. Uh, from Hollywood, uh, Tina Marie Griffin, she's known online as the counterculture mom. She was an actress. Uh, national spokesperson for Revlon Cosmetics, and she talks about, um, you know, Hollywood versus the rest of us, how to respond to the unrelenting worldviews put forth out of Hollywood and the media. Miki Addison, 
who's an amazing speaker. She's with the Urban Family Talk Network. And uh, music by Tadashi, uh, who, uh, moms and dads, I don't know if you know who Tadashi is. He's a Christian hip-hop artist. Guarantee your, your youth group knows who it is. But it's for all ages, and we've got more than a dozen speakers. And um, a leadership seminar as well by Dr. Mark Cowart, who's a dear friend out in Colorado. But um, the next TNG in our, it's called the Save a Nation Tour, is Tennessee, Murfreesboro, September 14, 15. Then we're going to be in Baton Rouge, Louisiana in October. And then we'll be in next spring, Arkansas and um uh, Oklahoma City, we're going to be in Richmond, Virginia next fall. We're going to be in New England, probably back in Connecticut. We were at Yale a few years ago. And so, Dr. Brown, um, apologetics is a part of the spiritual awakening that we need. Our nation urgently, desperately needs a revival. And Truth for a New Generation, it's not just some dry theological lecture, it is a Christian happening where, we, yes, we hear great speakers and we learn solid truth, but we're on our face praying, seeking God, asking the Holy Spirit of God to unite the Church, drive out the darkness, and breathe life into the body of Christ, including your kids, Mom and Dad. So go to truthfornewgeneration.com. We hope to see you there. Yeah, and so let's, let's now talk tangibly, practically, specifically. When, when we got the invitation from uh, your staff to get to these events. I just told Dylan, my assistant, if, if I can be there, just put me down. W- whatever the schedule, just if we can squeeze it and do it. So it, it's my joy to be part of this. But let's let's work this out now. Apologetics, this whole concept of tribe versus truth or inclusion, being part of the group, being more important than objective facts. How do we handle this apologetically? Break it down for us. Great question, great question. We talk about this in... Um a book I wrote about a year ago for a focus on the family called Abandoned Faith, Why Millennials Are Leaving the Church and How to Bring Them Home. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, two, two words I want to throw out there that we as parents need to role model, or maybe grand, grandparents, or certainly as Christian leaders. One is identity, the other word is stewardship. That we have to help people understand that as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, our identity our, our very reality, our DNA, our identity, is everything that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and back to those three things, acceptance, significance, security, that, that we all crave. You, you know, even a, a person who's highly educated, influential, affluent, you know, we think everybody's all about, you know, the bling of life and getting a car, having money. Listen, at the core, everybody wants to feel like they belong they matter, they're secure. That's what drives so much of our decision-making. So we have to help people understand their identity is in Christ, and then stewardship. Um, Dr. Brown, as much as I love America and I love the Church in America, um, in a way, I feel like sometimes the Church in America has proclaimed less than the full Gospel. And at least one thing we could talk about is this, that as a born-again believer, I'm not an owner, but a steward. And so, as a Christian, uh, why would I, you know, reorient my time, my life, my priorities, my values in line with God's Word? Well, it's because He's He's the Lord and the Master. And so, kids, you know, let me just say this. I understand how a, how a kid with same-sex attraction 
uh, or they, they have, you know, gender confusion, and they find a place where they feel like they fit in, in um, the homosexual community or in some party lifestyle away at school. And part of the reason I think the conversation over gender and homosexuality is so volatile, it's because when people feel like they have found acceptance, significance, and security, if anything questions or threatens that, they will dig in their heels and they will fight for it. Because many people don't see any other island to land on. That's why in the home and certainly in the church, we need to be the tribe that everybody would want to be a part of, the, mm. that, that is a place of unconditional love, that is a place where, you know, as, as your brother in Christ, I've got your back and you've got my back, and w- our identity is in Jesus, and when I serve you, I'm doing it as unto the Lord. And uh, that's just, the, the gospel is not just recite a prayer and one day you'll go to heaven, not hell. It's that, but the gospel of Jesus is our entire life, our community, our friends, the body, and I'm a steward. Why would I not, uh, you know, hit the bars and do acid or cheat on my wife? Because, for one thing, that is completely antithetical to who I am as a new creature in Christ. But the other thing is, um, my time, even my body, is not my own. I'm mm-hmm. not. I'm not an owner. I'm a steward, and so I, I think there's a lot about your question. We've got to teach identity. We've got to model stewardship, and we've got to give this generation. And, and they're hungry for it. They're hungry for it. But we've got to give them a more fully orbed view of being a Christian than I think they've heard in the last fifty years. Yeah, and you know, many of them are quite aware of the fact that conservative Christians, Bible believers, are pro-life, therefore against abortion, that Mm -hmm. we are pro-God's order of family and marriage and sexuality, so we're against LGBT activism. So so they know us as against this and against that, and a lot of them have not been in our home groups, or they have not been in our church services, and they, they know the gospel from a distance, so they have the the most negative connotation, because they don't hear the whole message. And that's obviously where our, our real walking in love on a neighborly level and modeling it in the family and a local fellowship is so important. Alex, the first half hour, I happened to mention that when I went to a church service in August of 71 to pull my two best friends out, the thing that got me less hostile, didn't change my own heart to the gospel at that point, but got me less hostile to what my friends were doing was that the people were so loving towards me. And here I was this, you know, very rebellious, very profane, ungodly, angry kid and, you know, long-haired hippie. And these folks, you know, these jackets and ties and dresses just greeting me warmly and loving on me. And I remember these two guys, they were in their 60s and they were just greeters. Uh, we didn't have formal, you know, this, you have a committee for the ushers. It was a little church. And they, would just, they took it on themselves to stand at the door and greet people that came in. And one was Brother Trixie. He'd gotten that nickname because when he was a boy, he used to grab these cats in the alley and, and then throw them in the church building to disrupt the service. So he's, he's always a trickster. So that name stuck with him. And then Brother Nick, Nick Santa Lucia, he, he had been a convict and on a, on a chain gang uh, when, before God saved him. And they were just full of life and energy. I'm 63 now. 
that makes sense to me. But for a 16-year-old man, they seemed ancient, full of life and smiles and greeting me. And I remember one of them telling me, no matter how close the devil is, remember, Jesus is always near. And I nod. It's like, what in the world are they talking about? But I remember those words now over 46 years later. So wow. we, yeah. we must, look, crowds follow Jesus. There was something attractive about him. And somehow, if we can live this out, friends, and understand that maybe the first thing that kid needs to hear is not you're wrong or you shouldn't come to church dressed like that or that. The first thing to hear is, hey, we love you. We are so glad you're here. That would make an awesome difference. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, and we need to invest in people with no expectation of return. Mm. Um, You know, do we want people to repent and turn to Jesus and be transformed? Of course, just as I was. But we need to love people, I mean, just because. And, and I really mean that with all my heart, and it's kind of transformed the way Angie and I have ministered to people and invited, I mean, all sorts of people into our home. I mean, we need to love people with no expectation of return because they can see that we're authentic. Um, one thing, and maybe we can talk about this on another show, I really think the American Church has got to rediscover the power of the supernatural. And uh, we are in a, a spiritual warfare as never before in this country because, you know, there's always been a baseline of lostness. But we're in a culture that denies natural law or moral truth. And so we're going to have to rediscover the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of intercession, the power of miracle. And I mean, calling down the presence and the power of God. Uh, we're a church that, and to, to really. And, and tell you what, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna rudely interrupt you, and this will be like a teaser for the next show. Oh man, if there's anything I'm with you, I've been with you on every word you've said, and especially the need for the demonstration of God's power. Jesus is alive. Go to truthfornewgeneration.com. Join me and the team in Nashville. Alex, thanks for joining us. It's time. Love you, brother. Bye. Love you. <laughs> 